Blog Talk Radio. Hey there, Dr. Ross Green here. Time for another edition of Helping Behaviorally Challenging Students. I'm coming to you live from the offices of Portland, Maine, where we are getting our first slightly meaningful snowfall of the winter. Here it is, December 5th, 2016, and um, this is the first one, maybe an inch or two. We supposedly have our two uh, educators from Maine calling in today, Tom and Nina, and one from British Columbia, Carol. I have not heard from Susan, also from British Columbia. Um, but how you doing? Um, you know, uh, it's December. I'm running on fumes here as we are in the final chapter of 2016. I know a lot of educators who are running on fumes as well. The call-in number is 646-727-2691. And you need to press 1 to get through to the program. Um, I'm going to start with some emails that we have received. We've got a long list to get through, and I'm going to start without our panel. Um, And as they join in, they can join in on the discussion. But here's number 1. We received this just a few weeks ago, a few days ago, actually. Um, I am new to using the ALSIP after going to the Social Thinking Conference last month. Yes, I was um, at several conferences in 2016 that were sponsored by Michelle Garcia-Winner and her Social Thinking um, model. And um, so lots of folks who are um, fans of social thinking and learning about social thinking also learned about collaborative and proactive solutions. Uh, The last one was in San Diego, which was just a few days ago, but also in Tacoma, Washington, and in Boston, and um, San Francisco. Um, So pretty cool that people who are social thinking fans are also learning about collaborative and proactive solutions. Many folks think the models go through rather well. Um, But let me finish the question, and I know we've been joined by one of our main educators. Is that Nina or Tom? It's Tom. Hi, Tom. So we have um, um, start. No worries. I've started on our first email, and the question is: If we're using the ALSIP with a teen or young adult, do you tell them what their lagging skill might be so they can work toward resolving it? And I'm going to answer that one. Um, you can't resolve a lagging skill. You can work on a lagging skill. And um, then it's sort of an educated decision about whether it's a good idea or not such a good idea to sell somebody what their lagging skill might be. But, of course, what you are being very explicit about with the kid, irrespective of age, is the unsolved problem. That you're being explicit about because it would be impossible to work on the unsolved problem without being explicit about what it is. What I find with some kids teenagers, adults for sure, is that they're coming into a helping relationship looking for an understanding. 
of what's been getting in their way all this time and um, why sometimes why previous treatments haven't worked. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that people have been only focused on their behavior rather than on the problems that are causing those behaviors or and or on psychiatric disorders, which are just long lists of behaviors and which really do not provide an explanation for why the kid, now perhaps a teen or adult, has been having the difficulties he or she has been having. So there are a lot of teens and young adults out there who are still in the dark about what's been getting in their way all these years and all this time. Some of them have come to the conclusion that they are stupid. Some of them have come to the conclusion that they are deficient. Um, those are folks who it's good to let know, you know what, um, what this really comes down to is some skills that you may be lacking. And let's figure out what those skills are together because all of us are lacking some skills here are some of the skills that seem to be have been getting in the way for you for a very long time. And here's what I find. While there are people who think that lagging skills are kind of negative, boy, lagging skills is a whole lot more informative than what people have been saying to these kids about themselves for a very long time. And unsolved problems, well, I cannot tell you the number of young adults and kids that I work with who had been mystified about why they've been struggling for so long when what it really comes down to is a problem that has yet to be solved, a problem still waiting to be solved, and one that may have gone 10 or 15 years unrecognized and therefore unsolved. So... Is it a good idea to tell kids of any age about their lagging skills? Not a bad idea, especially if what we've been throwing at them is behavior and diagnoses that have only made them feel like there's something the matter with them. We're all lacking skills. These kids are lacking skills too. They just happen to be lacking skills that make it very difficult for them to conduct themselves appropriately under certain circumstances. Tom, we've now been joined by Nina, but let's give you the first crack if you want to add anything to that. Uh, that was actually, I, I really don't have much to say except that I think that the biggest thing that, that most people don't realize is that focusing on the the, um, the lagging skills or, or working on this, it was kind of piggybacking on what you were talking about with uh right before I got on, which I kind of heard the end of, of you must have been referring to uh, Michelle Garcia Winner. Is that correct? Yes. Yes, that you're doing some. So so this idea that, that we, we're working with, with kids um, in a specific way that helps them to gain the skills they need is so much more affirming than saying um, this, this idea of the diagnosis. I just wanted to bring that back up, that it's just a huge, long list I've seen so many kids that it did nothing for, whereas building a relationship in that, that phase of working on the problem together is so critical. So I, I just thought that, that kind of the heart of your comments really revolved around the relationship that gets built by working together 
uh, in Plan B instead of telling a student this is what your lagging skill is. That kind of feels contradictory to me to what the, the, the goal of the work is. Well, if you say to a kid, you have ADHD, the kid's got nothing to work on. If you say right. to the kid, I've noticed that you're having difficulty raising your hand during social studies discussions, then we've got a problem to solve. One is a heck of a lot more informative than the other. Nina, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you. Any thoughts on this from your corner of the world? Um, I just, I mean, I just think everything you're saying is ex- ex- exactly right, and um, you know what we find at school as well, especially about you know we really just it's a dead end um, solution when it's when you're not asking the child what's going on and being specific about the problem. So I just love. I love that, being more specific and really having something that the child can work on. And it's a positive way to start start solving problems and seeing it, see as you have, you know, you have hope. And by the way, the reason it's an unsolved problem, of course, unsolved problem and unmet expectation are synonyms. If the kid was having an easy time meeting the expectation, then it wouldn't be an unsolved problem. The fact that it is an unsolved problem tells us that the kid's having difficulty solving it on his or her own. So, while it is true that identifying an unsolved problem is a major step in the right direction in terms of what the kid can work on, if the kid could have solved it on his own, he would have solved it on his own, he's going to need our help. That's why this is collaborative and proactive solutions. Um, Clearly, he needs our help. Otherwise, this problem would have been solved a long time ago. Mm-hmm. You guys ready for another email? We got a lot. We got a lot today, so I'm I'm going fast. Though we can we can go <laughs> oh, yeah. on anyone that we sure. want to. This one says, Dr. Green, I attended your conference in Oakville, Ontario, in May 2016. Yes, as memory serves me, I was in Oakville in May 2013 at a. <laughs> I think that was a two-day training on collaborative and proactive solutions. I work as a readapt officer in a school in Canada. I am trying the CPS model in our school. One of the problems I face is that sometimes students do not want to come for the discussion. Most of them do, but some who might benefit most are reluctant. Uh, I do try to establish an informal relationship with them and their parents. I find it difficult to get them to come in for the CPS discussion. Do you have any suggestions for me? I do appreciate your time and help. So, You both have vast experience, I suspect, with kids who are a little bit reluctant to come in for the conversation. Tom, you uh, were the principal of several buildings in in a prior life. Nina, you are the principal of a building now. Sounds Mm -hmm. like this person might be what we in the States have as the equivalent of a school resource officer. Uh, In the States, of course, those people have uniforms on and have guns. Um, what has your experience been in terms of kids who are reluctant to participate in the conversation, and how do you get them to sit down for it? Nina, let's have you uh, go I, first. Sure. I think that a lot of times it's that a child just really doesn't trust that they're not in trouble, um, You know, especially when it's in a, somebody of authority. So any any way you can make it as neutral as possible and gain that trust that they're not in trouble, um, I think that definitely takes takes time. Um, you know, as well, that it can't just be, you can't just call them in and expect that they won't feel that way. I think they have to trust that they're really not in trouble. So sometimes just um, building that and small little steps that a 
child will begin to understand that it really that you're that you mean it when you say you're really trying to problem solve it, and it's not any there's no tricks up up their sleeves. It's all about trust. Mhm. And it's it takes forever to develop and can be um, <clears throat> become challenging very quickly, no matter how much you've built up. So I think that. I think the, the, the first thing that I always say to people, whether it's an administrator who's working with a difficult parent or a staff member who's working with a difficult child and or parent um, or a parent who's working with a difficult staff member, um, I just always say to them, listen, really listen. And and um, I said to someone the other day, Ross, I think, think this is um, – it was really refreshing to be there in November and just kind of hear you speak again because it made me think and, and just keep continually practicing – um, we want to get everyone's concerns and perspectives on the table because if we don't have both both sides' concerns and perspectives, the 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 problem, the solution won't work. So, I think it, it really goes back to just um, parents have lost trust sometimes if they don't feel heard. And I think it, the hardest part of this is is having people understand that you may be heard, but you may not get everything you want. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that is very tricky for some parents to understand that that schools can't just do everything that they want. And even if the school would like to, they may not be able to. There's so many constraints, but we can always listen and get their concerns and perspective on the table and do our best to meet meet in the middle or find a solution that actually solves both concerns and perspectives more, accurate, more accurately. So here's something that came up during today's radio program for parents. A mom mm-hmm. called in from a foreign country, but her child is in a... Um, an American school in a foreign country, and she's hoping to get an IEP for her child. And after a bit of exploration, it turned out, because what I said was, um, let's not talk about whether you should get an IEP. Let's talk about what it is that you want. Mm -hmm. And then we can talk about whether an IEP is what you need to get what you want. And what she wanted was the folks at school to solve problems collaboratively with her kid. That's what she wanted. Now, mm. we're about to put, I'm, uh, Nina, you were central to getting this rolling, and I'm now working with um, the special education director in Waterville, Maine, mm. on finally getting a CPS-flavored IEP up on the Lives in the Balance website, along with, and I'm working with two of her BCBAs on this, a CPS-flavored functional behavior assessment and a CPS-flavored um, behavior plan, and a CPS-flavored 504 plan. So we are at the precipice of getting those up there. But let me ask your opinion on this. If a mom just wants the folks at school to solve problems collaboratively with her kid, does she need an IEP? Hmm. (laughs) That's a good question. I think it. Oh, you wanted Nina to answer. I want to. No, no, you no, go no. Ahead. It doesn't have to be Nina. Oh, 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 okay. No, no. I just didn't want to. Um, I, I think that. Uh, um, my heart tells me that that you don't need an IEP, because if you believe that kids do well if they can, and people are willing to come to the table and, and consider possibilities, um, which is a big, big ask for some folks. Um. I think that you don't need a plan. I think the hard part is when some of the things that need to be done to to solve the problem 
may fall out of the the zone of what's acceptable within policy procedures and and whatnot and we should always be looking at those to do what's right for kids but ultimately um i think that 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 there's a lot that you can do without a plan so i'm going to use the <laughs> the, the, there's no one right answer for any question, I don't think. Sometimes there is, but I mean, you know, the, 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 the answer to this question is complex. The, the simple point is there's a lot of stuff that we can do for kids prior to having an IEP. And, and I think sometimes uh, having an IEP does provide them the access to some of the supports that they need to be successful. Ross, I'm thinking of a little boy that I worked with at my last job. And we really bent over backwards to help this kid and worked so hard to work with with him and his family. And he just, he needed more than what we could give him. And I I remember running the case by you and and I was surprised and and felt, you know, validated when I told you what was going on. And you said, yeah, he really may not, you know, he may need more support. That doesn't mean that he's still not working on his lagging skills and unsolved problems, because I think the support should look like more help with doing that, which is where we get to the the CPS flavored IEP, which I love the sound of. Nine, anything? Well, no, I totally agree. I think that's when we started really um, doing more CPS at school. We saw a decrease in special education referrals. Felt like that's how we were treating all the students, whether you have an IEP or not. That you're, we were using the model for everyone. So I think. I don't think it's necessary um, to have an IP just for the purpose of solving problems, but I agree with Tom that sometimes in order to get um, some of the supports you might need, like an adult, an extra adult, or or something that you might need that you can't get with an IEP, that is, but for the purpose of solving problems. And sometimes kids with many challenges do need another set of eyes for the purpose of being um, you know, proactive and, and solving problems. So so I can see it that way, but you certainly don't need an IEP to, to work collaboratively with um, between adults and children at school. Now let me ask another question. Can an IEP um, provide a plan for not applying in addition to setting in motion what we do want a school to do, which is solve problems collaboratively and proactively with a kid, can an IEP provide a plan where we are not applying discipline as usual? And that's probably an even more controversial issue, although maybe I'm wrong. Nina, would you like me to? Sure. Do you want to? That, that's a big right one ahead. because I think right I think ahead. that that's that's where uh, <clears throat> you know obviously the working at the central office and, and hearing some of the conversations and participating in them around yeah. the needs of our students. The uh, uh, an IEP is a very binding document legally, um, and I think that it's really important to recognize that the the IEP can, in some circumstances. Uh, circum not circumvent but can uh, allow accommodations for students that um are are expectations for other students where i i don't know the answer and i would need to check with someone who's an expert at at you know um ieps is that area where you start to say that the discipline code doesn't apply to the student so it's really important to recognize that already if a student has a plan 
and they are uh, disciplined uh, and they're out for more than 10 days, they have a right to a manifestation determination meeting which decides whether or not the student's discipline was related, their actions were related to their, their uh, disability. So it's that whole process is in itself a uh, uh, an area of specialty within special education law. I would be hesitant to give any. I, I, you know, all of my experience in conversation is about experiences and what I've heard and seen. Excuse me, but I, I just I wouldn't feel comfortable without speaking to a, a literal lawyer who's an expert in that area about those issues um, because they are usually dictated by the way the plan is written, the actual policy, and the needs of the student and the student's identified disability. So I think it's all situational, Ross. I don't I don't know if there's a real clear-cut answer on that. Mm -hmm. I think you're right. And isn't it interesting? Uh, you know, this is the way society is, especially these days. Um, too bad we got to run it by an attorney. Mm -hmm. to yeah. make adjustments right. like these for a kid when we know, for example, that the existing school discipline program and the existing way of doing things that are uh, memorialized in policy are not what this kid needs. So much of what we do is governed by concerns about liability that every so often, or maybe even more than that, it actually makes it hard to do the right thing because we're worried about what will happen if we do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Shall we go on to another question? Sure. Sure. And I can, uh, you know, I've got some special ed buddies. I think I might see if one of them wants to join us next time. Maybe oh, we can get great. some clarity on these things. That'd yeah. be great. Yeah, I'd love Here's that. Here's the next one. It says, Dear all, I am a school psychologist who works in a service that supports primarily children with autism spectrum disorders. I am just wondering whether the model has been successful with this client base given their language difficulties. And I'm going to start the answer by saying that, uh, and this probably goes without saying, Autism spectrum disorder is such a broad category mm -hmm. that it is not um, appropriate to refer to all of them as having language difficulties. Some of them that, um, are extraordinary at language, mm -hmm. um, mm. but not at some other things that are related to social skills and flexible thinking, but their language is great. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that question away from autism spectrum disorders and instead think about just kids who have uh, language processing and communication difficulties that make it harder to do, to solve problems collaboratively and proactively with them, or let me put it another way, to engage them in the process of solving the problems that affect their lives. So with that as our uh, intro, um, what have you both seen in terms of, because I know what I've seen, but I always like to defer on this program and mm -hmm. I go last. What have you all seen in terms of involving kids who sometimes even have no spoken word uh, um, to engage I... them in solving the problems that affect their lives? Nina? 
Well, I think that I mean many of the students that I've worked with have some sort of language processing difficulty, or just as you said, um, some have just very limited language or um, or no language at the time. And I think when you're in the model and trying to hear their concerns and having empathy as well as able to you know share your concerns that you're just really creative you can you do whatever it takes to get those concerns on the table and it could be pictures it could be um thumbs up or thumbs down it can be just taking it very slowly um but you're just that curiosity and really uh listening you can you you can use CPS with all of those students, um, because often language is is an issue for especially I work with really young children, and um, just naturally many of them don't don't quite have all of the language skills that uh, older kids might have. But you you when you show them that empathy and are listening for their concerns and trying to solve problems together, you can do it. Tom. I think I think that's it. I mean, I, Nina hit it right on the head. I don't have anything to add to that one. I mean, it's all about relationship building, and 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 I, I can't emphasize enough that the the skill of listening is so hard for so much for for a long period of time. I really I've been at this work for I have a master's in school counseling, a master's in administration, and and I've been a principal for a long time. And I maybe I am a slow learner at times and and I have to say that I feel like only in this last year do I really feel like I've gotten way a huge growth in my listening skills. And so well, I think I, I just want to I want to encourage everybody to just be careful that don't be hard on yourself just keep trying. Right. And I think also the CPS model allows you to have that um you know not feel like you have to fix it right away and I think sometimes when yeah. kids are having some oh you know, if language is a uh, lack of language is an issue, you're trying to rush and get them back to class or get them on task or get them to finish something instead of giving yourself permission to sit back and really listen and um, not looking at the clock and trying to get them to do what somebody wants them to do. Uh, um, it's just it's very freeing and it it it'll give you much more um, positive outcomes at the end, even though it takes time. Uh, I just think that's such a gift to be able to sit back and listen and try to solve the problems instead of you solving it by rushing them back to where whoever, whatever adult wants them to be or what work they're supposed to be finishing. We have been joined, I believe, by Carol in Hi, British yes, Columbia. Pa- Carol, is that you? Yes, it is. I apologize for my lateness. Just like we had snow no today. Worries. Which, you know. You have what? Snow. We do, too. <laughs> we did, I know, too. on the West Coast. So. I have to go. I'm getting on a plane. See you, guys. It's thrown us for a loop today. <laughs> thrown us for a loop, for sure. So I apologize for my lateness. Um, Tom, snow. We're getting some, too. It's 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 going great here right now. Yeah. <laughs> Tom is salivating and uh, mm-hmm. waxing his snowboard. and he's Actually, my leg is shaking uncontrollably. What does it feel like to ride in the woods in that nice up. snow? I will box it up and send it to you. <laughs> <laughs> got his jacket back from the dry cleaner. He's got his boots. Oh, yeah. Well, Already been snowboarding well, five days this year, Ross. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's great. You, you won't see me out there, buddy. Um, you know what? There's a, there's a certain point at which being lousy at something and being cold at the same time just they you know what they they influence your behavior. Um, here, here's here's who I listen to when it comes to uh, doing 
plan B with kids who are nonverbal, speech and language pathologists who work with kids who are nonverbal all the time. And, you know, what they'll tell you is that um, if a kid can't tell you what his or her concern or perspective is, then we're willing to break one of the cardinal rules of CPS, which is don't guess. Uh, if a kid can't tell you, you got to guess. And the question is, how can, and that's based on our observations. So what my speech and language pathologist friends always tell me is that if a kid can't communicate with you through our preferred modality, words, then our observations are crucial. And if you've heard me speak mm. before, then you know that my reference point for this is infants. There are also assistive technologies out there. There's pictures. So in terms of the technicalities, there are lots of ways to communicate with a kid who is not able to communicate through the spoken word. Speech and language pathologists do it all the time. But in this case, it's what we wish to communicate with them about that is the rub. It's not really a rub because it can be done. We want to communicate with them about unsolved problems, which can be depicted in pictures, and our assistive technologies can be used to um, identify for a kid. We want to talk with kids about their concerns about those unsolved problems, which the same rules apply. Pictures, assistive technologies can help us with that. And we want to see if we can get this kid over time to engage in participating in discussions about potential solutions that address the concerns of both parties. Um, if a kid can't tell you what his concern is, your observations will help you guess. Grunting is communicating. Growling is mm -hmm. communicating. It's mm -hmm. not that these kids aren't communicating. It's that they are not communicating through our preferred modality, words. But that does not knock them out of the box at all on engaging them in the process of solving the problems that affect their lives. Y'all ready for the next email? Yeah, yeah. this is fun. I like these emails. Mm -hmm. I am wondering about the usage of the words challenging kids and behaviorally challenged kids. I teach students with diverse needs in an elementary school in British Columbia. Carol, you didn't write this, did you? That was not me, no. <laughs> no, not, not your name. And also teach a college course for paraprofessionals. I promote people-first language when speaking about students and needs. By placing the child slash individual first, the behavior is no longer the primary defining characteristic of an individual. For example, a student with autism versus the autistic boy slash girl, um, something for you to ponder. And to this person who emailed us, I agree with you completely. It's just mm -hmm. that sometimes, um, in terms of the flow of language, people first, which should always be our goal, makes it a little bit diff more difficult for there to be a flow that people can understand. And so when I don't use it, that's the only reason I don't use it. Um, but I prefer it. It's just that it doesn't always work out in terms of making things as comprehensible as possible. So I appreciate the input. Y'all ready for the next one? Yes, sir. Yes. I am an RTI coordinator, RTII coordinator, response to instruction and intervention, 
in an elementary school which contains grades K through 6. My main focus is coordinating reading and math interventions, but last year we began focusing on behavior interventions as well. I attended Dr. Green's training in Cape Cod this past summer and have read all his books. I'm a huge fan and supporter of the CPS model, exclamation point. The last recorded program suggested starting with ALSIPs and Plan Bs for students who do not have the most intense behavior issues, which I thought was excellent advice. However, we have an emotional support class in our school that is in constant state of crisis mode. There are 16 students in the program, nine fourth graders, one fifth grader, and six sixth graders. In the past, this class has been a self-contained classroom, but this year we are trying more of an inclusion model. Uh-oh, I moved forward too fast and now have lost myself. <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> uh, there we go. We also have a new emotional support teacher and attend the emotional support class on an as-needed... Oh, wait. Uh, we also have a new emotional support teacher this year. About six of the students are pushed out into regular classrooms and attend the emotional support class on an as-needed basis. The remaining students are having difficulty being successful in their grade-level classrooms. They are allowed to have brain breaks in the emotional support room, but this often results in students feeding off each other and behaviors escalating even more. Screaming, swearing, hitting, kicking, throwing things, hiding under counters, eloping, usually just from classrooms, but one student recently attempted to leave the school. At this time, the emotional support teacher is teaching a small math group for about an hour a day, but even that is interrupted by students having meltdowns. I feel like we need more staff and training for this program to have a fighting chance. In the meantime, any suggestions for handling crisis situations? I know suspensions are not the answer, but from a safety point of view, I don't know what other options we have. Some students have been placed in outpatient treatment services for several weeks at a time and are returning to school, and we are trying to transition them back into a school program that is not staffed or prepared to handle their needs. I am trying to support the ES teacher by sharing the CPS model, teaching how to do ALSIP's Plan B meetings, but she is quite overwhelmed at this point. Our principal, guidance counselor, as well as myself, are spending a great deal of our time putting out fires. Have other schools been successful with establishing a supportive and positive emotional support classroom using the CPS model? I feel like we need a reset button to establish clear expectations and procedures. Any words of wisdom would be greatly appreciated. All right. We've got our work cut out for us. Who wants to go first? Well, I can I can jump in speaking vicariously for Susan, who I know wasn't able to make it onto the program today. But uh, the school where she had the the most successful um, CPS implementation model going school wide had a very similar class in our district. We call it social development, where students are referred from other schools because they're unable generally to function appropriately in a regular classroom, and so they can be anywhere from K to seven. And it is, you know, a, a blended model of support in the social development class and inclusion in uh, typical grade-level classrooms, kind of flexible based on the students' needs at that moment, and it, you know, can vary. Um, I hear the frustration in that teacher's voice, and mm -hmm. I can totally empathize with the teacher of the class who is obviously feeling pressure to provide academic 
instruction to these students as well as manage their behavior and work on uh, trying to, to address some of the, the reasons why uh, and the situations that are causing them to have such difficulties. So, um, you know, I think what I heard there most prominently is that they're, they're in that cycle of crisis management, which is not the place for CPS. It's not where CPS can be most effective. So um, it sounds to just on the CPS side, I, I, I hear them saying, you know, we wish we had more staffing and things like that. That's very much an administrative personnel side of it. Um, but for the classroom teacher to, to understand and see the model as something that needs to be done proactively, and if the administrator, the RTI coordinator, and the counselor are all putting their energy right now into putting out fires, if they can shift their timing so that they have a, a proactive intervention model schedule system set up where you know they can be having team meetings about students before you know, separate from when crises are happening, really identifying what are the skills and the situations that those students need to start uh, having plans for right off, you know, to be, to be avoiding those situations. Um, then they can be supporting the teacher in that way that is so much more effective and, and more likely to bring around lasting change rather than just responding to crises all the time. And my advice, honestly, would be like looking at Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Those students are not going to engage meaningfully or sustainably in their academic learning if their emotional needs are so uh, demanding at this moment. So as a principal, I would honestly be saying, let's take that off the table yeah. for now. Yeah. That's exactly what I was thinking as well, is it just having some time as everybody involved in that classroom to be able to, as a staff, just take a, take a step back, have some time to, to think about, um, you know, what, just have a look at the program and are there places that they can lower expectation and, and, and what is in Plan C for now and just um, really taking a look at that. And, and I think that in that is the first step um, because feeling like you're in crisis mode all the time is so exhausting and doesn't feel good at all to anyone. So knowing where, what problems can you set aside? Which ones are you going to focus on? Um, and also just, just kind of looking at what, so even if you, if, you know, I've definitely been in that place where we feel understaffed and we feel this and, and seeing and talking about where we can make changes or what we can do with the resources we have or could we ask for resources, whatever it may be, I think that that's a real thing that happens is, is mm -hmm. being under-resourced and um, it can get overwhelming for sure. But, you know, like right now I have... A, I think different years you feel like you're in that for a little bit. And, so, you know, we have a situation where I have two children that just can't even be in the same hallway together. And that's a problem we're not even attempting to solve because we have other problems we're working on. So we as adults made, you know, we decided, you know, the child gets to be in this room at this time, in this room at this time to sort of, you know, and that gave us some time to really focus on the other problems and we'll get there. But um, we had to really talk to each other and figure out like what's going on. This does not feel good. No one's feeling good about this. How can we, um, make some changes. Tom, your thoughts? I, <clears throat> I think I'm speechless. I mean, it. <laughs> pro proactive is always the way to go, right? I mean, if we're being reactive, we're we're in real trouble. 
and so I think that that there, uh, honestly, Ross, I, at, at this time, I'd, I'd like to hear if you have anything to add what my colleagues said because I think they pretty much covered. I mean, I I know Nina personally or professionally, and I know that Nina has worked really hard on this very issue and has had uh, what I would consider to be significant success. You know, um, so I'd love to hear if you have any other additional thoughts myself. My main thought. Um, is to echo what we've heard, and that is that sometimes we put good people in impossible situations. Mm. Um, and this sounds like we may have put good people in an impossible situation. Um, we uh, Structurally, we have some kids in the classroom all day, while we have other kids who are having difficulty in their general ed classes filtering in and um, coming in in a bad space so that even if we have the class that of the kids who are in their full time in a good space, the apple cart can be upset by the kids who are coming in in a bad space. It sounds like we are trying to use this classroom for so many things that it is not accomplishing any of the possible missions it could be accomplishing. And it also sounds like potentially budget or staffing issues are making it difficult for us to see our way around that. We are, mm, I hate to put it this way, but, and uh, please don't take offense, emailer, this might not be true, but in some places they use such classrooms as a dumping ground. Mm -hmm. This is where we're going to dump every problem and um, good luck to you. And, um, you know, the, the people who often pay the price for that are the good people who are completely overwhelmed by what's being thrown at them. My first experience with this was way back when I was in graduate school. Uh, some of the elementary schools I was working with had a few staff members that I became very fond of because they were just those mm -hmm. kinds of people mm -hmm. who were incredible at working with kids. And... Mm -hmm. Um, I always wanted my behaviorally challenging kids, or better yet, my kids with behavioral challenges, to be in their classrooms. And little by little, as I began making sure that the challenging kids were in those classrooms, I noticed that these wonderful teachers would see me coming down the hallway and turn and walk in the opposite direction. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I would finally catch up with them and say, what's going on? They, and they would say to me, I'm afraid that you're going to put another kid in my class, and I can't take another <laughs> kid in my class, right? Um, yeah. I'm at my max. I can't. And these were wonderful teachers who were being um, uh, overwhelmed because they were good. This particular classroom feels a little bit like a potential dumping ground. Um, we've got to really pay close attention to what we're asking classroom teachers to do. And that's not just yeah. in terms of class size where we often overwhelm people with too many. You know what? Somebody really good, you overwhelm them. They don't look very good anymore. Right. I guess that's my two cents. Yep. I concur. I agree. Can so I just, in terms I know of what to do about it, well, go ahead. Oh, no, we just. I just feel bad because now we're really into something – could we talk about this at another program, Ross? Because I think it's so important to recognize that time is the critical thing that makes the difference in building relationships with kids, and time is the very commodity that schools don't have. Mm 
-hmm. Time costs a fortune. It is so hard to get time. And I just think time is a topic that can either increase or decrease frustration, therefore burning out really good people that you're talking about. Just throwing that out there, I just it's a way big, too big of a topic for two minutes. Mm-hmm. Well, and we can uh, actually we only have 56 seconds, but um, <laughs> so I, we're, we're he's technical. The I'm, I'm kind of <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty black and white, um, but um, we can certainly save that one for another day. But the bottom line is they're going to need some structural changes that permit this the folks who are in this classroom to have a fighting chance of having this fly. And that's kind of probably going to require not only structural changes, but it's going to require some money because under yeah. the current circumstances as it's being described, it ain't going to fly. Yeah. On that yep. note, we need to call it a day. I can't tell you how much fun this is for me every month. Thank you all for participating yet again. Let's do it I again next it. month. Eh? Absolutely. Perfect. All right. Thank thanks, you. Ross. Bye. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Bye. Bye.